Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Each episode of this podcast brings you a new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash thedirectorscut. This episode focuses on the new film by director Ang Lee, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. Mr. Lee's film tells the story of Billy Lynn, a 19-year-old army private who is hailed as a hero in the U.S. after a battle in Iraq. Brought home for a victory tour culminating in a spectacular halftime show at the Thanksgiving Day football game, Lynn experiences a series of flashbacks that reveal what really happened to his squad. The film is particularly noteworthy because of Mr. Lee's decision to utilize new fast frame rate technology that brings never-before-seen hyper-realistic images of the harrowing battle. Mr. Lee's most recent film, 2012's Life of Pi, also featured new technological advancements in its utilization of 3D. His other credits include Ride with the Devil, The Ice Storm, and Sense and Sensibility. In 2001, Mr. Lee made history by becoming the first minority to win the DGA's Feature Film Award for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Five years later, he became the first to win the Best Director Oscar for Brokeback Mountain, which also earned him his second DGA award. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Lee discussed the challenges of making Billy Lynn's long halftime walk with fellow director Robert Whitey. In their conversations, they discussed Mr. Lee's embracing of the artifice that resulted from filming at 120 frames per second, his idea to put the actors through Navy SEAL training in order to build the camaraderie he wanted to portray in the film, and how he views the trajectory of his career as an extended film school. I, I always bring Thank my you. own water, and I forget that they supply DGA water, which comes from the artesian springs that run under the theater, so I'll save theirs for later. Um, may I say it's an honor to be here with you. I'm so, I was so pleased when they asked me to do this because a longtime fan, as I'm sure most of us are, and you're a, you're a world-class director. You're the real deal here, so I'm unworthy. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm very proud to be in this guild, so it's great to sh uh, share this time with you. I, I have to say I feel a little bit uh, double-crossed because I saw the movie yesterday uh, in the this sort of with the special technology that you used the the um, 3D 4K 120 FPS and it was really a, a very unique experience and so in preparing the questions for today half of my questions were the conventional questions about you know the movie and the story and the actors and the other half was about the technology and then I walked into the lobby and they said no it's we're showing at 24 FPS in 2D, and it's like, okay, well. Uh, so there are some questions I still want to ask you about this technology you utilize, but we won't go into too much detail because this isn't how they, they saw the film here. Um, let's start with a very conventional question, which is how this uh, story found its way to you. Was it initially in the novel form, or was there already a screenplay by the time you came aboard? Uh, it was a hot uh, screenplay um, in the circus uh, 
but I, 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 I just did on my own. Uh, start from scratch again. So basically, the book, uh, Tom Rothman from from Tri TriStar, you know, we work Pi together at, at Fox. Uh, he just started uh, uh, TriStar. This is two years ago. Uh, when I want after Life of Pi, I want to do another 3D movie, uh, which is the boxing movie. Um, I, I was researching higher frame rate for for the 3D, uh, and and that took too much money. It never took off. I hope I still get to do it. But anyway, at that time, he 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 came to me with this book. Um, he said, "This is the book I love the most. Um, would you do it?" Uh, so I start reading the book because it's him. Uh, I think about two thirds. I, I feel like I, I want to make this movie. After I read the halftime show and the first firefight, I said, "This is a movie. Uh, it's like two stories in pie. One is uh, the public's projection of what soldiers and heroes are, because they don't have to go. The other half is uh, the other side of the is the truth. What really happens there?" I thought how dramatic, particularly uh, it put in the one days, like almost have three unity kind of play of a of a young boy, a soldier, uh, a coming of age. He has to make a decision and a revelation of what his life is, about what is uh, what his role in his life and where he's belong. I think that's a really poignant coming of age story. Um, the book, however. Uh, was in very much in first person's perspective. So basically, uh, a middle-aged intellect put his thoughts and observation of America uh, and American spirit into the head and the mouth of a 19-year-old boy. Uh, it's written quite brilliantly, at times acerbic, satirical, uh, really sharp. I found that it's very hard to make into a movie because uh, uh, in the movies, movies, uh, photorealistic Im no, images. What you see is what you get, basically. It's very hard to get inside somebody's head, especially the head and the face is so vastly different. I thought that's quite a difference. So when I thought about higher frame rate 3D drama, I thought maybe I can make it work in that form. But I, th I think, it's same thing like when I did Pi. I wouldn't do that if it's a normal format. But when I go over that um, mental barrier, when I thought um, I use another dimension to deal with the irrational number that I can see the circle, somehow psychologically I got over the barrier. When I deal with it, I think I'm doing another format. But when you revert to the regular format, I think it still works. No, um, I hope this works for you. Uh, not only people go to those two theaters can see it. That's that's a different experience, however. But I think all the look into the camera, all the uh, stream of consciousness kind of a approach. Um, I think it translates smoothly uh, for both movies. I experienced that. I think movie, after all, is how we play in our head. Uh, given different media, you. Uh, your consciousness, your your mentality, sort of sort of work in different levels, but after all, it's a human experience you share with them. 
Uh, I'm wondering because of that, I use different camera angles. I use longer shots, takes. Uh, I have different composition. I use different lighting, which I have to relit in in the transfer, and actor's performance adjusted to to that. And I had no makeup except the cheerleader, so. I think it's 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 different, but the same at <laughs> the same time. Well, when they play in this format, which is、uh, like basically commercial theater, we play. So the no makeup is simply because the image is so clear that even if the makeup is done you can see subtle, it. You're going to see the makeup. It also because the detail you start to see through them, and the makeup sort of blocking it.、Um, moving in this format, what we were used to has certain artifice. That tells you it's a story. It's comforting and and allow you to explore the truth more than in real life. That's the charm of movies. So movie does take、uh, artifice. And with the new format, even though I rip a lot of them off, but I still need to rely on being movies because in real life there's no close-ups, there's no framing,、uh, there's no plot. Anything goes. Um, Unfortunately, in real life, there's no editing either. That's the big problem. Right. <laughs> you wish you could do that again. Try again. <laughs> Different takes and cut out and cut out scenes you wish you didn't do. <laughs>、um, well, one one thing that was part of the、um, shooting schematic for this so-called immersion cinema of the three、um, D one twenty four K has to do with、uh, eyeline, which carries over. Here and I assume this is you were talking about the book being a fairly internal book, inner monologues and、It's、that sort of thing. Thought processing, thought mostly, processes. Yeah. So th- this sort of puts you in Billy's place in a lot of、uh, ways. So part of that is people that he's talking to eyeline directly into the camera versus his eyeline, which is more conventional, just off camera.、Yeah. Uh, I assume that all of those things were.、Uh, Known well in advance of shooting, that you would show up on a given day knowing right, exactly. Right, I cannot possibly shoot two versions.、Right. Yeah, but but、uh, is there any room for improvisation during the day as to oh maybe we'll get this shot or did shooting this way call for even more specific planning and storyboarding and that sort of thing? I, I wish I had that time, but、uh, because shoot, shooting higher re- resolution and、uh, in three D is、uh, more smoothness. Lifelike. That that's quite a challenge. I, I think I just raised the stake of filmmaking. I, I think somehow it translates into this format as well. I, I, I believe there's is something different about it.、Um, but the shooting days are quite precious. We shoot six to eight setups a day, averagely. Sometimes two shots. Even just the most basic, simple shots takes a long time. Like how we light it, how we deal with performance. And camera movement is so critical,、uh, and operation, and and all that takes a long time.、Um, we we did a lot of rehearsals. Every every shot here, I've shot at least once with single camera and video first, and one camera before I got into the two camera to do the three D on the day on the、uh, before the shooting、oh, days. Oh, so t- still、uh, yeah. Every morning, the 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 head of the department would gather together for half an hour and discuss. No, planning the day, after planning it, what if this don't happen?、Uh, what do we do? So we were very careful about it, and these are very veteran 
filmmakers. Uh, so I, I wish I had I can shoot five different <laughs> versions just just because try out, but I have to have the discipline and do absolutely what I need. So there are a few times I wasn't sure about the eye line. I would try different things. Only a few times, but most of the time I, I'm set for one. Just hopefully they still work mm -hmm. in 2D 24 frames. So there would be a general sense of the rules that you were establishing that if somebody's talking to Billy, for the most part, it would be right into camera, that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, if I decide it's, uh, it's first person, uh, I will set up the shots um, and invite audience to be Billy. And as you notice, when they come back to Billy in the intercut, when we come back to Billy, Billy doesn't look into the right. lens. So I just hope that works. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I, I felt. I, I think uh, audience give you a certain allowance if they fall for the story, fall for this uh, situation, if they like the characters. And you know, the real truth is, I mean, here we have a room full of directors and people who work in the business. I would say ninety-five percent of the people who would see the film in a conventional cinema two D wouldn't even maybe catch Probably. what's going on with eyeline and that sort of thing. I think that tends to be sort of thing that washes over a lot of people. but, but I, I, I don't know why we didn't do that before. I think so, some directors think about it. A few movies do that. Uh, I did my own test. I thought it's a 3D thing. It gives you more allowance because it's more like how your eyes see things in real life. You allow that to look into the lens. And movies being French call it voya, somebody else's business, you peek into it, you get a kick out of it, somebody's story. So you step aside and watch happening. It keep you in a safe distance. Um, so we hardly use it. Very few, if you use that, to me, it's like um, they talk addressed to the audience, not a uh, character you identify with, such as Norma Desmond at the end. Those beautiful <laughs> people sitting in the dark. He's you're thinking that he's talking to you instead of the character she's talking to. Um, but I think it still works. It's just just because we didn't use that as our convention doesn't mean that people don't allow that to happen. Well, there have been any number of your films that I've seen where I've come away thinking, "Oh, I haven't seen this before." Um, either you know, story-wise or things that you tried technically. Certainly, Life of Pi. Um, here, you're you're breaking new ground in a number of ways. What what does that do to your um, crouching Tiger, I should say, too. What, is, what does that do to your confidence level on the set when you are sort of creating a new cinematic vocabulary when there are no precedents to look at to sort of gauge yourself? Are, are, is there always a part of you that's wondering if this is working and hoping for the best? I'm a conflicted person. <laughs> uh, on the surface, I'm a nice guy, kind of shy and very easy to be scared. <laughs> but when it comes to movie, and I have to say, in in marriage, I think you need to be lawyer. But when you make movie, um, I go for the excitement. Uh, I, I think uh, um, I would like to see my career as a as a big film school, extended film school, and of course, people have to pay us to, to learn. <laughs> Uh, it's fascinating how movies are made, how people are watching movies. It tells me not only about the art itself, but the life, you know, understanding myself. I feel that um, only through pretending or something else that we, we get to touch the truth underneath what's underneath the, 
what we're there to go about in a civilized relationship. So that is a, a wealth of mysteries I would like to touch to, and different stories, different setups, different genre, they all do different things. Uh, to me, I'm curious, and I'm always uh, also a uh, avid filmmaker. I, I like to learn those things. How do people, how do mind tracks work in certain genre? What is that implicit understanding between filmmaker and 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 the audience as a group? How how things are going about with each other? I think that that's fascinating. If I keep doing the same thing, I know how that works, or I can have a good educated guess, then I feel pretty lame. I don't want to spend my life doing that. Like, that was, that'll be like doing a job to me. Of course, with the same, within the same genre, you can keep digging and peeling onions as well, that, that people choose to do that. To me, uh, select different challenges, put me out of a confident zone, uh, or comfort zone that I'm forced to explore something new. Yeah, I, I'm scared. I'm not like a daredevil kind of person. <laughs> but uh, so I think freshness, the lack of confidence, and you allow yourself to show that in front of the crew, which as you're something directing, that's not a good thing to do. But I have to, to put yourself there and not knowing exactly what to do and guessing. And also allow your crew to help you you show your vulnerability, I think that's when things are most fresh, most interesting, uh, less like work, like mm. doing a job. Uh, that's why I'm making movies. Uh, so it's all still on the job training. It's exciting, yeah. yeah, job training. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, some, somebody told me you can have like three quota, three movies. If three flop in a real commercial flop, you better do what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't met the three in a row yet. I, <laughs> the, the most I get two. So. <laughs> Just made it. Um, let's talk about the film thematically a little bit. You know, one of the things I was thinking about when I saw the film yesterday, one of my favorite novels is uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five, which was also made into a wonderful movie by George Roy Hill. But um, the subtitle of that book is The Children's Crusade because it's based on Vonnegut's own recollections of World War II. And he said these wars are not fought by John Wayne and Robert Mitchum and Henry Fonda. They're fought by kids. Yes, these are yes, the high exactly. school kids, college kids. Did on that, both sides. Imagine sure, yes. give teenagers guns and go at each other. That's what this right. is. I mean, when yeah. I was a teenager, I was, what, hanging out with my friends and going to movies. My my life was not on the line. My fa- My father served, and I think about being 19, being 18, and being given a gun and say, people are going to kill you and you have to kill them first. Did that thought of um, the age of these soldiers, I assume that loom large on yeah, your mind? Yeah, that's very important to me. They're not John Wayne or Clint Eastwood. Um, they're, they're basically kids. For, for, for our age, we look at them. And they're unfortunately the coming of age in that circumstance. It's very dramatic for, for theater. But... Uh, very poignant for life and sad sometimes. It really messes them up. Um, so I think we ought to be careful and planning. You know, you send them there. My, my, well, the book is political, uh, no doubt I inherited. But my focus really on those kids, particularly Billy Lynn, what, how he deal with the mass, massive situation, how he grow from it, 
how he identified with life and himself uh, and his own fate. Uh, I try to keep it human. Uh, he's not a hero. That's very important to me. He's not a hero. He's a soldier and he's a human being. How did he go through this messy situation? It's like, a, in a way, it's focused on Billy Lynn. On the other Billy Lynn, it's like a reflection, like a mirror to, to our society, the reason why he's there. Um, I, I try to stay neutral and stay on those young boys. War films from another generation, uh, say uh, Battle of the Bulge or The, the Longest Day, um, are very clear about who, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And I think war films as of late deal more with the ambiguity of, of, of gray areas. Now this doesn't deal with ambiguity in terms of good guys and bad guys, but deals with a different dichotomy, which is making heroes out of people who don't feel so heroic necessarily. And I was thinking how there, there, there is a problem sometimes of uh, people who fight these battles coming home and being basically ignored. But this is sort of the other end of the spectrum is people coming home from these battles and almost too much it's is celebrated. being made of them. Yeah, that, that there's another agenda going on, almost for entertainment or to make ourselves feel better. Um, well, I what I found from my research talking to the soldiers uh, who went through this, I think what bothers them the most is when people celebrate them, take them as a hero, or just simply thank them for their services. That That's really the killer for them. Because uh, we, we, we don't have a draft here anymore. You don't know those soldiers, like your brother, yourself, your neighbors, people you know. It doesn't really interweave in with the society anymore. Uh, as in the book and the movie, they go there for different reasons they belong to a different class. They were trained to fight, but they end up doing beat cops and building school and all those things they're not trained for. And eventually meets hostility. They have to sort of cuddle together and very <laughs> nervous. It's us against them. When they come home, it's us against them too. That's the killer for them. That, that's, that really hurts because they, they cannot relax. They feel they're not understood. People thank them because they don't have to go themselves. So they, it becomes a, a class of its own, being isolated, misunderstood. I, I think that's the true pain they feel, as if people shooting at them, that reality seems to be more closer to truth than, than homecoming. Um, let's talk about uh, the process by which you discovered your newcomer, Joe Alwyn. Um, did you know from the beginning that you wanted to go for an unknown for the part of Billy Lynn, and what was the thinking behind that? Uh, pretty much. If there's a movie star who fits this age range, I'll know already. So <laughs> the fact we uh, we go out uh, searching, we pretty much search uh, anew. It, it takes months before we you know, were lucky to see his tape. Uh, he was third year in a London uh, drama school. And the first week he signed with uh, a young agent. Uh, by Friday we saw his tape. And we flew him Sunday. Uh, like one, two minutes into reading it, this guy. Yeah, it's pretty obvious. It's a top-notch talent and a compelling face and all that. So your lead actor is British. You're from Taiwan. 
And then you wonder why the Trump people say the foreigners are taking all of our jobs. See what's going on here? <laughs> um, sorry, I don't mean to uh, go there. Um, Let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I understand that the, the other young actors who were part of the Bravo company actually went through some kind of basic training that was not just pretend basic training, but the real thing. Yeah, 70% real. Uh -huh. Yeah. I have the top Navy SEAL trainers, and I said don't treat them like actors as long as nobody gets hurt. Um, to, to me, it's, it's important, well, those young actors respect their job and respect soldiers. They have to have a taste of what they went through. Uh, they didn't go to war. Uh, but I think, I, I expect them, because Bravo is unseparable, I want them to perform as one unity. They have to put themselves, their ego, their whatever aside, and bound very quickly. And when they're seen as a group, whether it's in the battlefield, when they're in action, or just hanging around, uh, goofing around, they have to act like one unit. So I think certain training, uh, uh, break them and rebuild as a unit, as the military uh, advisor would say, uh, I, I think it's necessary. I, I hope they enjoy the process. It's pretty tough. Uh, I was told it was it's equivalent to 70% of what Navy SEAL go through for the first two weeks. Mm -hmm. wow. um, One thing I really appreciate they do is if they left anybody behind, they'll be punished. So they're really doing trainings to function as one unit. They're trainings to, uh, like they're lifting one big log. If you don't use an option, somebody else has to do it. And they've been driven if they're first one to arrive, they will be punished because they left somebody behind. It's really about not just physically beat them up and tough them up and, and lose their ego and all that, get hollow at, use weaponry. A lot of the time, the training is about how to help each other. I think that's, that's quite remarkable. There's some other faces in this film that I wouldn't have necessarily expected to see in an Ang Lee film. I'm talking about Steve Martin and Chris Tucker and Vin Diesel to some extent who does a lot of over-the-top action films. What was, again, in that you had intention to use an unknown for Billy Lynn, uh, was there a certain thinking about um, going for faces that wouldn't be the usual suspects of putting uh, actors in your film that would be unexpected? Or these are just actors you thought could do these parts well? Was it as simple as that? Uh, I think it's both. Uh, I know they're a good actor. They they care for acting. Uh, if they are recognized as acting, acting kind of actor, uh, they probably give a lot more to prove that. I, I think that's, that's all good. But mostly those parts, in the book, I think this has been done many times before. Like... like um, Chris Tucker's role. Um, in in the book, is an old Jewish, Jewish successful uh, uh, producer. That's been done many many times. So I I didn't find that particularly fresh because I'm a filmmaker. I, you know. um, and also many movies done that before. Uh, so so is that a, a norm character, the football owner? Mm -hmm. You expect who to play that? Uh, people in the business will call out such a person, like the top three to play that. I think their performance bring in the non-stereotype and, and, and bring freshness. 
there, there was one connection with Steve Martin to you. I remember the year that um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was at the Academy Awards. I remember Steve Martin saying that he saw the film and he was disappointed because there were no tigers <laughs> and no dragons. <laughs> and then he realized they were all crouching and hiding. So, Yeah, I remember was, that very well. I was sitting Don't boo me. It was Steve Martin's joke. <laughs> I remember another line, his opening line in that ceremony, the, the most action, more than that. He said, uh, hosting Academy Award is like making love to a beautiful woman. I only do that when Billy Crystal is not around. He's out of town. It's <laughs> 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 a very funny guy. Yeah. And he's proven himself a good dramatic actor in the past, Steve Martin. He's actually quite good. It's interesting. I find there are a lot of comedians who, when they wind up doing drama, are very good at drama and I suppose it has something to do with the insight you need as a comedian to sort of tell, find the truth perhaps. All the great comedian I met with, they're terribly serious person. You cannot make them laugh. They're all like <laughs> this. First, same thing I met him. It's not one joke. I could not make him light up. He's The whole time we have lunch, he was staring at me like this. <laughs> yeah, <the laughs> Including most... if I try to tell a joke and he'll be like, look at me like that. Uh, they're they're serious people. Uh, same as Chris Tucker, never crack a joke with me. <laughs> the most you'll get from them is that's funny, <laughs> um, something like that. Yeah. Now, uh, look back a little bit on on your career. Um, it, it, in, in many ways, it's been unconventional. In that, if we go back to 1995, uh, with Sense and Sensibility. Somebody said, we've got this Jane Austen novel with these very proper British people. Let's give it to a Taiwanese director to whom English is a second language. <laughs> we'll start That's broken English. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Thanks for being polite. Uh, back then, back then. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's better than me now. And then we have, um, let's say, Ice Storm in 1997, which is about the fallout from 1970s permissiveness in a uh, Connecticut suburb. Uh, we have Brokeback Mountain, the old movie cliche of the gay cowboys in Wyoming, which we've seen so many times. Um, <laughs> taking Woodstock, about that little concert in upstate New York. Uh, is, is there something to be said from viewing American culture from a different culture? I mean, you've been here for a long time, certainly. But that, that maybe lends you an insight into things that maybe us who grew up here may not see? Is there an advantage to being an outsider coming in? Well, certainly the disadvantage is, is the familiarity, which I think can be amended to some degree uh, by diligently study and research, uh, asking, talking to people, and certainly can be amended by the help from your crew. Uh, you know, I, I got a lot of help. Uh, I didn't make those movies overnight. Um, no, it take a year or so. Uh, there's a plenty of time to make it just about, I think, right. Um, I, I think what you said was very true. I think from outsider and other culture, what you see is accuracy, just the shape, what it is. I think you see the accuracy first, more so than people grew up there. And, and you see the subtext a lot faster. You're not in it, so you, you see what it is uh, right away. And also, I grew up, well, when I do Chinese movie these days, it's harder for me because so I grew up in it. It's harder to see the subtext, you know, 
And I think I know that sometimes is becoming, and I have my self-image. So that becomes sometimes a benefit and an obstacle. Uh, I think it's been fair. Outsider sees more clear from outside and inside. It's just the, the texture, the, the self-image, the cultural part of it. You have to make amendments to make that work for the, the general audience. Um, I think there's something else about Americans and, and to the English uh, to some degree. As I, I grew up in Taiwan in a very protected kind of atmosphere in a bubble where uh, we're protected by the Americans, by the allies. And also I watch American movies. American is a, to me, it's just not one country. It's kind of an idea place. Um, they look pretty on the screen and they're idealistic. They do the right thing. They're the good guys. And it's the only one country I can think of in the, in history that's gathered by an idea, by ideas, not blood, not history, not uh, territory, not land, but it's some very good ideas. I think the whole world fall for it. As I live here, I think that's, that's the idea. Uh, the American idea really matters to me. Then there's reality of America. So you got those things. When I live here, I think that becomes a very interesting subject. Um, I think Americans important countries like center stage. It, whatever happened here, ripple out to the world. Uh, not only Americans should study, I think the world should study it because it affect all of us. Uh, because the ideal is really globalize all of us. Uh, to, to me, it's, it really matters that uh, I put my observation, my thinking into it, and that shows on those films. I, you sort of just confirmed this. I was going to assume that um, your introduction to American culture as a child was probably through movies. Do you remember specifically some of the movies you saw growing up that impressed Every you? movie. Every movie. <laughs> uh, mostly Hollywood movies, not so much our film. Uh, and television as well, all the TV series. You know, we, we're dutifully watching. I was dutifully watching like everybody. You grew up with the American... Um, uh, uh, television series. I watch more Hollywood movie than the Chinese movies. I watch them both. Um, but American movies are the better movies. And I live in a, a city that's the maintenance center for the Vietnam War. <laughs> so during the, from that 10 years, all kinds of, uh, fighter planes landing hover over our head. Um, so that, that's how I grew up. I see all kinds of planes. They come to Tainan, the city I grew up, as a, as a big airport. So we see a lot of Americans, and mostly up there with, with the planes. What, uh, I, I, did you know from a young age you wanted to be involved in the arts and, and be a director? No. no, you didn't. No, the way I grew up, uh, well, my father was like, uh, when I did Sense Sensibility, he looked at me and said, I reckon at this rate, you might, around 50 years old, you might get an Oscar. Maybe you're happy and do something for real. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of way I grew up. There's no artistic sort of channel through anything. We just sit there and study uh, so you can be useful. That kind of a culture I grew up with. And I always feel guilty. My mind drifts away to movies, to plots, to f fantasies. I'm one of those inert kind of a uh, 
very docile, inner kind of kid whose mind is off, spaced out. Um, but I felt the college examination, I just fall into drama school. So that was a hideout before the next year's college examination. But once I stood on stage, I just know that's, that's my thing. Mm. And I stopped pursuing college, I just stay there. So I, I, was, I was electrified by the dramatic experience on stage, and I just always loved movies. Uh, I, I didn't dare to admit I'm a filmmaker until like after Sense Sensibility, when I get paid mm -hmm. <laughs> the first time, my fourth movie. Uh, I feel I'm professional growing up and taking responsibility. I'm dealing with movie stars and major league film production. I feel like a grown up. But before that, not 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 to play family therapist, but did you ever get the acknowledgement from your father that okay, you've made good? I think eventually I become sort of in Taiwan's uh, national pride and all that. I think he's sort of okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> if you haven't done it by now, I don't know what it's going to take. Well, I, I think he, he think it's, it's, it's a great honor and great interest. The thing is that, uh, in our society, well, back then, the art of movie doesn't, f doesn't see it as a culture. It's an entertainment business and people are not behaving well. Uh, that's what is bothering him. I think eventually I got his blessing because I didn't, I still live a normal life. Uh, I cannot tell you how many young kids come to me, Chinese, say that without you, we would never, I've never been allowed to go to film school. Mm. So behaving well becomes my uh, new restriction because mm. that's how I get my father approval, not because I get the Academy Award and be held as the, uh, seen by our president like, giving me awards and all that. But I, I uh, my life is okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a normal person. Um, I think that make, finally made it okay with him. Mm. Well, uh, I have to wrap it up here, but we'll go out drinking and discuss this further. Um, we are glad you made the decision to become a filmmaker, and we look forward to the next one, and we thank you for being here tonight. Ang Lee. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. Thanks for listening to this DGA Q&A. Check out past episodes of the podcast by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at dga.org slash podcast. We'll have a lot more episodes coming your way over the next several weeks, so stay tuned. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to The Director's Cut on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.